Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is the man in charge of all the audio for the Grammy Awards, veteran television audio engineer Michael Abbott. But first of all, do you know what black box money is? Well, I bet you don't. But it's a term for unpaid royalties for songs where the recording couldn't be correctly identified and matched to publishers. Basically, it's owed money that can't be found. Unclaimed royalties, in other words. Now, this can happen for a number of reasons. The biggest one is the metadata isn't correct. So if you're a songwriter, people can't identify where to send the money because maybe you are not connected with the publisher. And this usually happens with indie artists, by the way, that aren't represented by a publisher. It could also come from something called breakage. And that's the difference between an advanced royalty that a publisher gets and maybe the royalties that are earned or not earned. So all of a sudden, that excess money goes kind of into this black box where no one can identify where it's supposed to go, and therefore the record label or the publisher ends up keeping it. It could also come if you have a hit overseas, but you're not registered with the performance royalty organization in that particular territory. So there's a bunch of money sitting there for you, but you don't know about it, so you can't collect it. So this is black box money. And there's a lot of it. There's $2.5 billion worth of black box money that's out there that is not being collected. And songwriters could use it. So there are a few organizations out there that will try to track it down. Audium and Song Trust. Paper Chain is another one. But that being said, the Music Modernization Act tried to come to the rescue of songwriters. And part of the MMA was the formation of something called the Mechanical Licensing Collective. Now, that was supposed to go out and find, among other things, the black box money, and then distribute it to all the people that it was owed to. But there's a big fight over this, and there's basically two groups that are vying to be chosen as the administrators of the Mechanical Licensing Collective. No one likes either group when it comes down to it, but it's really publishers versus songwriters with the songwriters saying that the publishers have a vested interest in not distributing it and the publishers saying that the songwriters don't have the expertise in order to collect it and then distribute it. So this is a big fight that's going on, but pretty soon the copyright office is actually going to figure this out and will make some sort of a decision on who is going to form the Mechanical Licensing Collective, the MLC, and go after that black box money. So, if you're a songwriter and an artist, how do you stop your money from going into that big black box? Well, the biggest thing is metadata. Make sure that you have all the metadata so you're easy to find. That's the biggest thing. And the second thing is make sure that you register with an association like ASCAP or BMI or any of the local PROs in the various territories overseas. So you make sure that people can always find you so you can pay the royalties that you're owed. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more.
Now, there's a lot of people that swear that music helps them concentrate and helps them be more creative. And I think if you're under the age of 25, you're used to multitasking. And one of the things that's happening as you're working is also listening to music. But there's now been another study, and there's been several of these, but there's another one that comes from three universities that have found that background music really doesn't help you. And the way they determined that was they took their subjects and they divided them into three different groups. And one group listened to songs with foreign lyrics that didn't mean anything to them. So, for instance, if you're English-speaking, you heard perhaps Spanish lyrics. just didn't mean anything to you. And then another group listened to just instrumental music. And then a third one listened to music that they knew that had lyrics. And then there was actually another test group that listened to music that had library ambience. So in other words, if you go to a library and you listen to all the coughs and the copy machine and everything going on in the background, that's what they heard. And what they found out was that creative performance dropped significantly in basically all cases except the library ambience. So it didn't matter what kind of music you're listening to, it impeded your concentration and your creativity, even if you liked the music so much that it elevated your mood. What they determined was that music disrupts something called verbal working memory. And that's because the changes in pitch and tone in music is very disruptive on an unconscious level to us. So if you like to listen to music in the background while you're working, perhaps you'll get more done if you don't do that. Yeah, I know it's tough, but it might be worth a try. My guest today is Michael Abbott, who started in television audio doing front-of-house sound for projects like the opening and closing ceremonies for the Olympics and the Academy Awards, to working for major television networks as a staff mixer on a variety of shows. Michael now heads the sound design, engineering, and consulting company All Ears, where he not only coordinates the audio for the Grammy Awards show, but shows like The Voice and Shark Tank, presidential debates, and award shows like the ESPYs, the Country Music Awards, and the Oscars. In the interview, we talked about the massiveness of the Grammy audio setup, keeping the performers happy, the super fast sound checks involved, some of the last minute problems he's presented with, and much, much more. I spoke with Michael via Skype from his office in Los Angeles. Let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into the business? 1972, I got out of high school and there was a, uh, a war going on and I wasn't going to college and I walked past this house where they were building something and I was fascinated because I, I love building a building with wood. And it turned out it was a company called Flag Systems, which they were building speaker cabinets for Tiger Bray, which was one of the original rock sound companies many years ago. And about two weeks later, uh, after working with them, just walking in off the street, we were driving a bobtail truck doing pickup gigs for them uh, in California for like uh, acts like uh, Lee Michaels and... Uh, Savoy Brown, you know, just one-off stuff. And uh, ended up parlaying that to a, a group called Procon Harem, where I moved to Europe for over three years, living in, in London and Munich. And, you know, while they were on tour, just traveling around, came back to the States and bounced around with probably 10 different acts over 10, 12 years. And in 84, I got... Uh, I got married in 82, wanted to stay married. So 84, I was trying to get off the road. And <clears throat> that landed me opening and closing ceremonies for the Olympics with Stan Miller of Stan L. Sound. Oh. Yeah, do you know Stan Miller by chance? I know him by reputation, sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, Stanley, Stanley's very care. He's a character, and we love him to death. But he said, "I'm going on tour with Neil. You run the company." And now I had very little resources, but we ended up doing the opening, closing ceremonies in about ten locations, providing sound reinforcement on top of the contracts. He had like the amphitheater, Universal, the Greek Theater, the Pantages, the Pacific. So um, after the Olympics, two weeks later, I was filling in for him at the Republican Convention in '84 in Dallas. He was the consultant or the sound designer, I think. He was the sound designer slash consultant. And I found myself at a city council meeting telling the uh, city council that the contractor that was installing the speakers that they had awarded the contract to wasn't using Finberg. She was using Pressboard, and the baffles were falling out of the ceiling. And there was 400 of these, and there was faulty wire, you know. So that was my introduction to kind of the real minutia of of the sound reinforcement business and i stayed there for a couple years ended up working um i got hired the second day of the joan rivers late show by fox when the network started up and i worked there for a couple years till i got laid off in a contract negotiation and i ended up the next day at cbs tv city for six years working all over the place they in those days the networks were kind of like the training ground for you know people that transition off the road you needed you needed some basis of broadcast experience and that was my school for broadcast because i did post-production i did production i did game shows variety shows soap operas sporting events i mean you name it news uh promos uh, across the board and it gave me a basis of understanding of that end of the business working in a facility and after six years, they offered me a buyout because they were trying to downsize after being bought by Westinghouse and Larry Tish. And so I got out of there, went down the street to Paramount Studios, ended up working at Paramount for six years doing a, another show, the Lisa, John and Lisa, and turned into Lisa show. And after that, I started easing out and freelancing. Um, and I've been, that's, I've stepped from in one golden pot into another into another and another and literally those those transitions with the networks were all within 24 hour period and word on the street knew of connections you know and just took action on it so i i've had a very blessed career across the board with people that have uh, hired me for services you know okay so you have a wide range of experience what's the most fun or what's been the most fun well, you know, being freelance is probably one of the most stressful things, as you probably know, and, and mitigating, you know, the what's my next job and, you know, you're only as good as your last paid. It, it drives you, at least it drives me to try to keep an even keel uh, with the people I work with and the clients I have and, you know, my personal life. It's a challenge. And the past 10, 15 years, I've, I've gotten to a level where I'm pretty busy all the time, you know. Uh, so doing doing things that I want to do, um, I love challenges. I get very bored just sitting around and doing the same show repeatedly, which is kind of why I do so many different things. And I've, I've been able to skew a few young guys that have risen up, so to speak, to the top of the silo with me that I'm, I'm trusting to, and putting into projects that I do uh, on my behalf. And I start them up. I, I lay out the groundwork and work with the production and the post-production. 
and and that that's kind of the most fun. I mean, I I have done so many different projects in my life um, that the challenge of an each project new. I think that's what drives me. That's the that's the joy I get in in uh, ascertaining what a client's looking for from my position and developing a workflow for them. And a lot of what I do is all based on establishing a workflow that's very efficient in terms of post-it shows so they have access to the assets, they know what they need. Uh, I'm not taking credit for it, but with the expansion of uh, capabilities into record decks where we have embedded you know, 8-channel, 16-channel, or 64-track multi-track with Viamati, what I've done is I, I split head amps, and I, I just one example, I, I put in regular... Uh, attenuation, say for dialogue, let's just say a number minus twenty, you know, on a, on a head amp. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in during an excited period, or when there's music on the floor, say in the voice, and it's 110 dB, that microphone's padded down 15 dB. And what Post is able to do, they're able to extrapolate dialogue without distortion, and put that dialogue, what that uh, coach is saying, to the other coach without uh, closed captioning. And that's something I just stumbled across because I, I saw I saw a need for it. I said, there's got to be a better way of doing this. And, you know, it was a simple thing if you if you look back on it. But that kind of that kind of uh, nuance is what drives me working on these shows. And I've got a I got an Emmy plaque behind me that says audio complicator uh, that uh, I was given. And I, I do complicate things to, at the same time, I try to balance it with a uh, uh, a need, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it, when I'm putting shows together, there's all this criteria in the background in my mind that you have to maintain, which is, you know, it's got to be robust. It's got to be scalable. It's got to be deployable. You know, all these factors play into, so when you've got a one-day wonder show that you're setting up, how do you how do you scale into that with the amount of time that the producers give you to set up a show? These digital platforms that we work on now, what we do in one day compared to 15 years ago when we were still in the analog domain, <clears throat> it's night and day. Yeah. You know, um, libraries that you have on consoles. I'm very fortunate. I work in a uh, a similar set of trucks that have the same infrastructure, so to speak. Maybe different console platforms. But nonetheless, the same patching, the same routing, and there's a uh, an application that I use that's pretty much the same for every set of uh, spreadsheets that I put together for these shows. And that, in turn, goes to my A2s, my assistants on the floor, or the PA mixer or the foldback mixer, whoever it is. And they know that pair one on the high-level return, that's going to be an audio tape playback, three-fourths videotape, so on and so forth. So there's a, a methodology that I try to employ – and I, I think the guy, similar guys that do this, some some do prep, others don't. A lot of the guys that I've not nurtured but mentored, I know they do that. It's something that you know makes their life easier, and the producers see it, you know, because they're able to turn around a show quickly in one day. The Grammys is is of, of the temple shows. That's the one that I do on an annual basis. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that because again the complexity of that with the multiple musical acts the fact that there's so much going on at once most of the people that listen to this are studio engineers 
So they're very focused on what happens in the studio, but it's a night and day difference between what you do and what happens in the studio, obviously, because the complexity and the time element is so different. So how do you get your arms around that? Well, this is my 30th year, so it's it's not second nature, but I, you know, years ago I used to not sleep the night before because I would be concerned am I forgetting a major component? Everything everything's on a spreadsheet nowadays and it's 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 rehashed every year with refinements. The let's just say for number 20 acts that come on the show annually, every single one of those has a centric point of view and how they're coming into the show. Uh, it's dependent upon the experience of their of their people. Uh, it's dependent upon how willing they are to collaborate. Uh, I approach it in a in a very collaborative mindset. And if I take the twenty acts, I componentize each one of them, and I have a record. Very, I'm very structured in the and detail oriented in the sense that I write a lot of stuff down so that I don't get overwhelmed. I'm, I've got my, my yellow legal tabs that I use, my memory sticks as I call them, uh, but I, I use Doc, uh, Word Doc and, and Excel extensively on all my projects. And I've got one for a Fortune 500 company that I'm working on that's a, it's a scope of project and it's four pages long and it has probably 30, 30 bullet points of all the aspects from the scheduling of install to the operation of this tasking to this, that. So you find things with the acts and the personalities of the engineers and or the producers that I deal with. I'm fortunate that I know a lot of these people from previous you know years of doing this show and other shows that I'm involved with. And we have, <coughs> we have a relationship, which is really important and the trust the trust is there going into it that I'm here to help you facilitate the vision of your act. And, you know, the challenge therein, as I've said in many articles, is my producers have got one vision, the artist has another vision, and at some point they merge into a singular vision. But some acts, we won't say who, they're very centric, as I call it, in how they want to parcel out information. So at that point where I'm not getting a lot of information, I'll use Google as a very good example. If I can get three, if I can get three visuals of somebody and what microphone they're using, chances are that's the microphone they're going to use and will request until they come up and want a pink mic or a yellow mic or something like that, which is a whole other uh, task flow. But I'm, I'm, I have a template input list. I know what my engineers, the broadcast engineers, want to use for microphones. At the same time, um, there was an artist this year that came on that uh, their engineer is an old friend of mine, and he wanted X, Y, and Z. And I told him, I said, look, I respect what you're doing with these mics. I understand what you want. I understand what the artist is. And let me talk to my engineers and see if they'll acquiesce and do use what you want. The reason we kind of try to use the same microphones and people don't really look at this this way is we have a finite amount of time to set up sound check, set up, set up sound check, rehearse, and drag off and bring the next band on. So if as an engineer you would understand you've got presets with your drums, your vocals, your you know, all your instrumentation. 
And if the microphone you're using is the same mic all the way through, those presets are going to work pretty good. Yeah. And you're going to be able to dial a mix up. I had a guy that came up to me or went up to another engineer, said, look at this, listen to this CD. These, these are all the songs I've mixed over over you know the past year. And, and the engineer went to him and said, that's great. Could you do this in five minutes? <laughs> and that's the difference between... You know, in the real world, that in the TV world, especially that we live in, versus an engineer, and I'm not saying this negatively, but we don't have all day to work on a kick drum. Yeah, all right. You know, typically you hear the kick drum three, four beats, move on to the snare, and you what you want to do is you want to get you want to get you want to get the entire drum kit sounding coherent to itself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some guy that sits on a snare on a live stage. It just keeps on hitting the snare repeatedly for 20 minutes. Well, you're wasting your time on getting the rest of the sound to to evolve, you know. And yeah. um, I I know a very famous recording engineer that went to work or was auditioning, so to speak, for a friend of mine to do live television. And his this engineer called up his guys in the studio where this guy was working and auditioning with the multitrack. And they said, "Oh my God, he's not past the snare yet, and he's been <laughs> there for two hours," you know. And this guy does some really high-profile stuff. So it, it, there's getting everybody on the same page to understand, you know, what we're doing. I had a guy this year that called me up in November and said, listen, we're going to be on the show. And I'm like, okay, I, I, you know, I can't say who, who is and who isn't at that point, even if I knew. Usually I don't find out until probably mid-December a good idea of what's going on. And he said, well, this is what I'm going to do. And he's rattling off what he's going to do in the truck. And uh, at the front of house and at the fold back. And I said, well, do you know what your actual performance is? And he said, no. I said, well, then how can you tell me all of this if, if you don't know what you're actually doing? You know, he says, oh, that's a good point. I said, do, do me this. As we get closer, just, you know, know you can reach out. We can talk and we'll get you what you need. But the rules are we never bring anything to the front of house. The broadcast truck, we've, we've got everything that you could possibly need. And monitors, that's a whole nother case. Well, but let's talk once you know what's going on. And that's the problem is I, I kind of know what's going on, but I always don't find out because it, it's, a, it's a large group of people. Even within one act, there could be 15 different people doing the creative, the uh, choreographer, the stylist. I mean, I'm at the whim of a stylist on one particular artist this year on what kind of mic she was going to wear or use. So it's a lot, it's a lot of moving parts and documentation and spreadsheets helps you keep track of that moving target. You know, you're mentioned about miking up everything quickly, especially the drums. I did some work with the great Ken Scott, who was engineer for the Beatles and Bowie and Supertramp. And what was interesting about him is, you know, most engineers go in and they EQ, you know, whatever they hear a deficiency and they EQ in or out one or the other. Yeah. He EQ'd the microphones. He knew them so well because he used the same things all the time. He knew what the deficiencies were and he EQ'd that. So you could put any instrument under it and it worked. And you kept on changing things and it never changed anything on, on the mic, CQ wise or anything. It just worked. And I thought, that's an approach I haven't heard about before. Is that something like you guys do? Well, I, I call it a palette, you know, the microphone selection we have, we have every manufacturer under the sun offering mics for, you know, to use and each, the two broadcast mixers, I build input lists that are supposition partially, but also worst case scenario. And I submitted to him, I said, give me your, 
you know, your pros and cons in each of these. And the two of them with, now we have Ed Cherney work, working with us as the Recording Academy consultant. He's bringing a, a coherence to their workflow where we want a similar sound design from two humans. Getting two humans to mix the same thing and make it sound exactly the same, it's never, there's always going to be some nuance, and that's what mixtures do. Um, the microphones are, are one palette that we use for a, a, a mixer doing PA, the PA system, this type of speakers, that's another palette. I call for me for broadcast when I'm mixing a broadcast. I have Pro Tool or Waves uh, sound grid for the broadcast now with all the various plugins I use. That's a palette to me that if I've, let's just say, if I'm mixing dialogue and I've got a high noise floor because of 14 10 ton HVAC air conditioners and I got to suppress that noise, I, I went to post my post house levels and said, how do you guys clean up this dialogue? And they showed me they used a, a combination of a, dub, a dual path of uh, two WNS plugins, one set from zero or 80 to 800, the other 1200 on up to 9K. And that's how we clean up all that noise floor with all the air conditioning in the background. And it works wonderful. Like any tool that you can use, you can use it to an nth degree where it's going to sodomize the signal and it doesn't sound natural, you know, and yeah. that's for what I do. I want things to sound as natural and as robust, and the best resolution and sometimes the least amount of processing with the right microphone as you know, Ken's using for his palette. That's the key to it. You know, it's all, it's all the tools that I have at my disposal give me the quality that I'm, I'm looking for for my clients. Well, okay, let's go there for a second. So you mentioned the right microphone. Does that change per show, or is that something, is that your personal taste that you find that certain microphones work most of the time in this situation? I have, uh, let's say, audience reaction mics. My, my go-to for that is uh, shotgun, you know, Sennheiser MKH-416s or Neumann 184s, KM-184s. Or I've been a big fan of the, the AKG 747. It's a shotgun pencil the size of a number two pencil that I hide in, say, a mosh pit or near field to catch really, you know, graphic audio, so to speak, sometimes obscenes, obscenities. Um, lavaliers, I, I've tried them all, and I currently have a, a favorite that's not uh, readily available from a manufacturer. And it's a new technology, and you know I'm on NDAs, but I've been using it for a lot of the TV shows, and to the point where the producers they hear a quantitative difference when I use these mics, and they call me up and say, "Do we have to use hand mics anymore?" To which my music mixer would kill me if I said yes. But I find these same tools, and I use them for every show. And I don't want to say I have a stylized sound that I provide, but it's just it's the the last thing I want to do is go f searching and flailing when I'm trying to find sound for something because I'm using something wholly unrealistic, you know, like using a, a, a Neumann 189 for a Volcomite. Well, that's great Volcomite in the right circumstances for the soundstage or an arena or, you know, a stadium that we're in where the producers want this look. And we get, we get challenged with this all the time. When you use that kind of mic, it's kind of a visual they're looking for as opposed to what the sonic reproduction is. And I remember we did this for one artist on a show I did, and she insisted on that type of microphone for vocal, stylized vocal performance. And we came out of commercial, and I told the director, we said, we can't have audience applause because it'll just overwhelm this mic. 
And as soon as we came out of commercial, it was no, no applause straight to the performance. And I faded it in and you heard every sound on the stage because the response of this mic, you know, it's a rich studio mic, but not for that environment. And the guy that makes it the voice, Randy Faustino for the music, he did a phenomenal job with that type of circumstance. But, you know, we're challenged. And sometimes getting taken out of your element, that's a payoff as well. When you can pull something like that off with everybody collaborating, the director not cueing applause and, you know, uh, nobody complaining because it's high noise floor going into the song. You know, it's 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 not reactive. You, you can't be reactive. Sometimes you just got to go with creative vision and try to pull it off as best you can. So what's the hardest task that you have then? Is it getting all of the various people to work together well? I, because I w- would imagine you got the artist and the artist camp and management, and then you have the director, and then there's the audio people for the artist, and I can only imagine that they're antsy because they can't get their hands on anything. So that must be difficult in itself politically. Well, I've got, first off, I've got roughly 40 guys that do the Grammys and have been doing it for many years. There's probably 500 years of experience. So we went to New York last year and did the show and I wrote a, like a 14 page scope of project because I didn't want to take for granted or forget anything that we did as a normal for the past 15, 20 years in LA and, and get to New York and not, I did it more for my peace of mind. So I knew major bullet points what to do. So, I was able to address that with the with a fresh group of guys that do these types of shows, but not as a coherent, a cohesive group. You know, it's a, it's a, it's the most efficient group of people is five, as the military says, and then the next is I think fifteen. And as soon as you get past thirty five people, that's where you start having things fall off because you can't manage humans can't one single human can't manage that many people that's why you got a sergeant or a corporal you know mm-hmm. and that's kind of how we have our structure with the audio team the engineers we work with some have uh perceptions or their their thought that yes they're going to come in or no they can't touch anything and for the most part i've got guys that are mixers that are tasked with doing they they answer to many masters the primary master is we all, it's the network doing the best job for the network on down to the producer, on down to the uh, associate producer, on down to the broadcast mixers. And so, you know, there's this pecking order. So bringing in this other force of the artist engineers, a lot of them know our guys. I mean, my two stage fallback guys, anybody that's done a high level, high profile artist knows these guys and these guys know them. So we don't run into this very often. What we run into for foldback is bands want to bring in their own monitor system, which is a huge challenge. Last year in in New York, we had seven acts that insisted on bringing their consoles in. I have a a variety of issues with that. And I used Radiohead at Coachella where their console failed because they didn't pay attention to errors. And I, I mentioned that to my producers. Who's liable for when it fails on air? if it fails on air during the Grammys. Me, the artist, I mean, there's no sense of liability. Luckily, most of these consoles are pretty well maintained and we have knock on wood, no failures, but it's, it's a, you know, there, there's the collaboration at its highest form. Me trusting these guys and these guys knowing what I need, you know, at the end of the day, I still got to have connectivity. 
We're not going to take a Maddie stream from it. It's going to be good old analog because we're still stuck in that rut. So it, it's, it's, you know, a lot of massaging personalities. And I, I say that harshly, but it, it's, it's a lot of interface and just talking to people and making them aware of the, of the dynamics. Guys want to bring in their files, their snapshots for the digital consoles we use. And we're, we're very against that because the file structure and the uh, management of the console operating system with, with the vendor we use, AudioTech, is very concise. turns out Firehouse has got a different uh, uh, methodology using the Digico consoles. Uh, and they're not as risk-averse to that as we are with uh, AudioTech. But I, I, it's neither here nor there. I just This is the way we have to operate, and we can't afford We've tried it with guys to the point where we've given them our snapshot and let them map, and they don't understand all the all the infrastructure that we have to have on site between two consoles on each side of the stage, cross-patching each other on the Opticore network, in addition to they don't understand that what made it, maybe their mix one is our mix 24. Right. Because we've got things preset, we've got devices, we've got in-ears, we've got wedges, everything's mapped out, so you can't take that snapshot and reorder and have expected to work. We also don't have the time to sit there and, and go through it and vet it when you bring it back. So we've we've tried that. We started that with, the, I think, the PM1D, um, the Yamaha console, when everybody was using those. And the failure on that, you know, it just, it, it kind of, we had to set a, a rule on that. Presets, which are, you know, file-based, acts bring those in and put it across channel strips and, you know, everything within reason. But it's... If, if you you see the theme I get along is we, we try to act in a very robust um, manner of operation, not introducing potential failure because the whole the whole existence of my my being for what I do on these shows is that at some point what's the failure mitigation because we've had failures you know over the years of different magnitudes. Uh, and that's, that's what I have to kind of sit back and go, what, what's the cause effect of doing what you want to do? Yeah. We had an act that came in at eight at one, they came up to me and said, our, our aerial rigging isn't working. And I said, audio. And they go, well, <laughs> it's, it's wifi. I said, audio. I said, well, you know, the people here. And I said, okay, what did you tell anybody that it was wifi? Well, we've used it in 300 cities. I said, how's that working right now? And it turns out Staples had put in a new Wi-Fi emitter, very powerful. And what it did is it basically suppressed all the Wi-Fi in the room because it was so powerful at whatever band it was operating. So at a commercial break, we, uh, we were able to get Staples to shut it off. And the guy came running and he says, yeah, it's working. And it's, you know, it's simple things like that that because people don't tell us what they're doing, I, I can only help them so much. We had right before the show this year, we had a similar thing where broadband noise minus 80 deviation on everything that's operating at 100 uh, dB minus 100 dB deviation, all the in-ears were getting stepped on. And I didn't find out about it to the last minute, literally. And I got with Staples and I said, we went through the same exercise. Anything been engaged in the past 45 minutes, an hour and a half? They said, no, everything's been running since you've been here four days ago, okay? 
how about LAPD? Is there any IED suppression going on? You know, these things happen. And we went in there to the command booth and sure enough, they said, nope, nothing going on there. And there was something over here, some kind of technology. So we were trying to figure this all out. And then I looked at the RF coordinator. I said, have you got alternative frequencies we can program the ears to? And he said, well, yeah. And I realized, well, they've all handed out the ears for the first three acts. So that's too late. And just at that time, the noise went away. Now, Michelle Obama showed up. And I know when there's sitting presidents, the Secret Service will put out broadband IED, uh, IED suppression technology. I don't think they did it for her. I think it probably was some projector or a very light, not a very light, but a uh, LED screen. Something was putting out a high noise floor, and it went away. And we dodged a bullet going into the three-and-a-half-hour three show. That's, that's the kind of unknowns that I, I sometimes end up dealing with. Wow. Well, how, how about RF? RF must be, with everybody using so much that's wireless these days, that must be a nightmare to, to wrangle. Well, we've got, we've got a company that Soundtronics that is our RF vendor. In New York, we use Firehouse, and those individuals are tasked with uh, coordinating frequencies. And uh, it's kind of a zone defense. We, for ba our base set of microphones is about 48 to 50 RF microphones. And what we do is we get a, a, a spectrum of frequency allocation for those 50 microphones, and maybe six of those are a guest act that brings in their own RFs, and we allocate frequencies for them. But for the three hours of the show, we zone out the first hour. We'll go through X amount of microphones. Then we'll cycle back to that same beginning of that set of microphones for the next hour and the next hour. Um managing the artists coming in they all understand it doing festivals there's got to be a discipline because you just can't start firing stuff up at two o'clock in the afternoon if you're playing at 10 o'clock at night with your electric guitar and uh it's to the the vendor soundtronics we even go to the extreme of we provide satellite uh, antenna ports on stage or up in the uh, bleachers where their consoles are set up, where all their in-ears are. We had an act uh, two years ago in L.A. where they were behind the video wall, and they insisted on using their RF instrument guitars. And we even provide those. We either what we call local uh, receivers that we throw down on a riser, or they plug into our house antenna system. We have two, two different options. So people have, you know, but this one act insisted on using their own RF, and they're holding up rehearsal. And, uh, and I, I went to the stage manager and said, well, their guitars aren't working. And I went back and talked to the guitar techs. He said, yeah, the guitars aren't working on the stage, and, but they work back here behind the video wall. And I said, where's your antennas? And they said, right here. And they're pointing at the video wall. Well, the, it's not going to permeate that environment. So we gave them, we gave them remote antennas, and it still didn't work. Because, again, this liability, they didn't have half their pores weren't working on their combiners. So, you know, it's we, we, we're, we're tasked with real-time diagnostics. And, again, the guys I work with, they've experienced this stuff over time. And, you know, it's a knowledge base that you have that you can apply to this type of stuff. Totally fascinating. Yeah, I guess it is. To me, it's status quo. But it, it you know, when we, when I speak with an individual like you, and 
I, I explained it out loud. Yeah, it, it's, it's experience, you know, and that's a lot of the guys. I don't fault these people that sat at the Academy Awards the other night and were complaining about the sound of music and the orchestra. Because, A, I don't know what their sound system set up for, you know. There's 7% of the public, I think, have 5.1 capability. And of that, that 7%, what percentile is set up properly and what are they hearing? You know, yeah. or what's the charter cable or what spectrum or, you know, how are they sodomizing that signal? Uh, we, we run into these problems where a live show on, say, NBC goes out and I listen to it back through DirecTV and the 5.1 sound field is completely different from what I mixed it at. Yeah. And the problem is there's there's a lot of hands in the signal path that I don't think it's intentional, but it's a lot to manage. So I, uh, I kind of mitigate my feelings based on that knowledge base. It's frustrating, nonetheless, but uh, knowledge is good. You know, if you know how some of this is, how it's being executed and deployed, it helps. You know, speaking of the Oscars, I just had lunch with somebody who was involved in that, who told me that they covered the orchestra pit. So I think that probably had something to do with the sound. Well, it did it make, make it sound boxy, but... Yeah. Tommy, Tommy Vicari, and I'll, I'll use his name, is one of the best orchestral mixers in the business. And I don't care what anybody said, uh, the In Memoriam with the LA Philharmonic sounded spectacular, you know, to get a 50, 60 piece ensemble on stage and make that work and set it up in that time and, you know, pull it off without Pro Tools yeah. playing back to augmented. And the, the house band orchestra was Ricky Miner, who's a friend, a dear friend and one of the best at what he does, yeah. and Tommy was mixing that as well. I think these were local station, you know, local television reception that was mitigating the sound, collapsing the mix, so to speak. Uh, because I know, I know, I know all those guys that are in the mix chairs and the engineers that support them. And I know nobody's going to let the mix go out unknowingly. Sure, you know, factors. Right. Last question, Mike. What's the best piece of business advice that someone imparted to you or you learned along the way? As I said, I, I mentioned, I've been part of my give back in my mind is to bring young guys in because I don't think there's a generation coming in that started in the seventies. Like I did that, you know, when it was a, it was an, it was a craft. It was a, an art, the pat, you can hear the passion of my voice for what I do. Um, there's a lot of entitlement in the generation coming in. One one really important thing, and I wish I'd learned this a lot sooner than I did, is I go into meetings and there's 50, 60 people at a table, and it's a you know it's a big production meeting or it's a, a production meeting in Washington D.C. with 30 Secret Service and the National Park Service, and somebody's driving the meeting and it's moderating, and you know somebody somebody has to say something or me, I'm sitting there, I typically go to these meetings and I have my hand over my mouth because I've learned to say something, you have to engage some muscle groups besides your mouth opening, but you, you have, it, it gives you pause. And I, I tell young guys, I say, don't react, don't react, don't react. And it's three beats because your impulse is to say something. And chances are, if you don't say something, somebody else is going to say similar to what you're saying. So why do you want to be the hero, so to speak, and point out something and 
have somebody else do it, and then possibly he's going to get shot down, and you saved yourself from, you know. Yeah. It's it's a simple it's to me it's a simple approach for business because everybody wants to impart their two cents. Yeah. Very few people want to listen. I think listening is listening to people, and I I'm still guilty of it. Listening to what people have to say is really a skill set because you know it's like the employers I work for. I've worked I've worked for some fairly famous people. I will read their autobiographies if I'm going to have a tenure with them. Because you know what? That's free information. That's free insight. It's like Facebook. You, you learn more about people on Facebook than I care to think about or care to know because people feel they have to impart their feelings on Facebook. The same thing with an autobiography. It may be revisionist history to what they really did. And I know in the certain cases of two individuals uh, specifically where they were not competing but they were collaborative. And both of them have different spins on how some instant, instant musical history happened. And I find it fascinating because that's, a, that's their point of view. That's their perspective. And it goes full circle back to people's centric view. Everybody's got a very centric view. And unless they're in a collaborative mindset, you're not going to change that. But I would say listening to what people have to say and not reacting and giving it some time. You know, it's like, it's like typing an email, responding to somebody. There's no reason to respond in any frame of mind rapidly. And especially if you're angry, typing angry. If everybody would just drop back a beat, I've said it a bunch of different ways, but I think that's, that's the most important aspect I've learned and I try to live by. There are so many great articles about Michael and what he does online. So just do a Google search for Michael Abbott Audio if you want to check them out. Michael Abbott, that's A-B-B-O-T-T, do a search for Michael Abbott Audio. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyowinnercircle.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and now Radio Public. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyowinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.